And here we are at Thanksgiving. It'll be the, the week and the time of year, and then that rolls into Christmas. And we have this one day that is, that is this national holiday, and it's sanctioned for us to be grateful, right? So, so uh, in a lot of ways, it's really sad that we have to have a national holiday or an appointed time in which we tell our friends and our loved ones and the people that we care about and the people that we work with and that maybe even we tell God uh, how thankful we are for them and for him. It, it, it kind of, when you put it in that way, and I'm not trying to be negative. Some of you are like, you're, you're being negative today. I'm not being negative. It's true, isn't it? We, we struggle with being thankful. We struggle with being grateful and expressing gratitude. We struggle with that attitude of thankfulness to start with. So we struggle with just uh, grappling with it as an emotion. And, and even in our own selves, we, we struggle with the idea of, of saying thank you, of expressing gratitude, of being able to bring ourselves to this point to where we live in a gracious posture. Uh, it's a challenge. I can stand up here and, and bore you into the afternoon, with, and you could bore each other into the afternoon with stories and illustrations and highlights of, of how you've been hurt or injured or experienced or felt in gratitude. If we were all, uh, you know, I guess honest with ourselves, we could probably tell stories on ourselves about how ungrateful we are as well. Um, and it wouldn't be easy to do. And it would probably be one of those cringe moments and cringe factors where we recount a story in which something we should have been really grateful and thankful for, or maybe it's the whole of our lives, and we just weren't, and we're just not. And so it is an issue. It's not just a holiday. From the scriptures, it is an attitude, it is a state of mind. It is something the Holy Spirit helps us with, thankfulness, gratitude, because it doesn't come naturally to us. Everything that I just described there is what we do naturally. We are naturally ungrateful. We're naturally people that lack the idea of thankfulness. Um, I'm, I'm just in this thing recently where I'm just thankful when somebody just responds. I, I've lowered the bar <laughs> on myself and, and on others. I'm just thankful sometimes when someone will return an email. Or will return something else that, that doesn't belong to them. Or, or just happens to be courteous in some basic way. Someone that doesn't take a poke at you or swing. I think we've just lowered the bar or have to lower the bar to this level that is just not of Jesus. And is certainly not of a place in which we should live. Because that's kind of where we're at with this whole thing. An amazing conversation this week with a group of pastors talking about this. And talking about if anybody is in here, you've ever been in public service or you've ever been in, in, in service to other people, and that's your job. You spend your life serving others. Uh, and, and I could guess that there are, everybody in this room has done something, whether it's vocationally or otherwise, in serving other people. You know what I'm talking about. We don't do it because we want to be told thank you. And we don't do it so people will be grateful for what we do. But occasionally, if we're being really honest, it would be real encouraging if they did. Right? And this doesn't just go for people who work in, in, in helping people uh, for a living. This just goes maybe in your own home. Maybe in your own marriage. 
Maybe in your own friendships and relationships. If I pass out, y'all just pick me up because that strobe is hitting me and I'm like, so, so if I just, you know, just keel over, just, just pick me up and somebody just keep going with this. We're in Luke 17, so just continue the, the sermon. Uh, so we've lowered the bar, but it's not acceptable. It shouldn't be acceptable, certainly to the follower of Jesus. Luke 17 tells this story. I'm going to read it. I'm going to point out a couple things that maybe, maybe will help us be reorientated and maybe think a little more about this idea of gratitude and what we are and should be grateful for. And then once we realize that that is something that should rule in our hearts and in our minds, we should ask God then maybe to help us express that in a way that is more rich and more seen and more known in our world and in our lives and in our relationships. Luke 17 says this, Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem. Now Jesus had been teaching along these lines. He had been on his journey and he's teaching about forgiveness and he's teaching about faith. And then in verse 11, Luke picks it up in his narrative and says, Jesus continued on the way. So he continues on his way to Jerusalem as he is teaching, and as he is healing, and as he is doing miracles, and as he is being Christ. Verse 11 says he continues toward Jerusalem, and he reaches the border between Galilee and Samaria. A lot of you know the history of the Galileans and the Jews and the Samaritans, that they were at odds with one another. They, they, their cultures hated one another. They were rife on both sides with prejudice and racism and hate. And with long stretches and histories of even violence. And so Jesus heads toward the borderlands of Galilee, where place that inhabited Jewish people, and Samaria, Samaria, where Samaritan people lived. And these borderlands sometimes were unoccupied in many ways. Why? Some of these villages were barren. Some of these were like these scenes you see in these Western movies that have, of these places that have been abandoned and sagebrushes blowing through and, and these places hadn't been inhabited for a long, long time. You see them now, these cities, places like Detroit and others in our own country that have seemingly been abandoned. No one lives there anymore. And, and, and no one, you know there's people that live in this city and in these areas and surrounding areas, but there are certain pockets where they don't. Well, on the borderlands between Galilee and Samaria, this was true. Why? Because Jews and Samaritans didn't want to cross paths. They didn't want to be seen in the same place together. They didn't want to eat in the same places. They didn't, uh, I mean, in many sects of Judaism, they believed that it was unclean for you to be even in the vicinity. So they didn't even want to risk going anywhere near them for fear they may run into somebody. And so the borderlands of these two places in parts were barren and some of these villages were small and some of these villages had, had people living in them that were uh, afflicted greatly with disease. And so a lot of them would go there because they te- took refuge because there wasn't a lot of people. So people with diseases in that time were, were, were seen as outcasts and placed in the marginalized of society. We have a different experience in, in our society, thank goodness, that in many ways we see people that have diseases and that are hurting and are afflicted. We tend to scoop them up and give them a lot of attention, and we should, and we should we care for them, and we should help them. We have physicians and medical professionals in, in our group here. 
But, but in this day and age, those that had a particular disease called leprosy and other diseases like them that were communicated and that you could catch would oftentimes go to places where there weren't a lot of people. And so some of them made their ways to the borderlands of Galilee and Samaria. Because guess what? Wasn't a ton of people living there. Why? Because they were afraid of the lepers. And they were afraid of catching a disease. No, unfortunately, in this particular case, they were racist and prejudiced and fearful. And they didn't want to mix in this way. And so it made a great place for certain people to live And it made a great place for people who were outcast in society because of their disease to live. In verse 12, it says, as he entered the village there, 10 lepers stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, go show yourselves to the priests. Now, Jesus already healed a leper. This is different. Remember the last time he Heal the leper, and, and remember what he would do a lot of times when, when he would heal someone with a disease, he would, he would reach and he would touch them. He's, he's getting there. We've met, so it's fine. <laughs> it's good to see you again. Right? Touch or speak to it. Not here. Bible says that from a distance, Jesus sees these 10 men afflicted with leprosy. They cry out to them, to him, and he looks at them. We, we see throughout the New Testament when Jesus looks at you and when he has, puts his eyes on you that, that he does so with compassion. He does so with love. He did this to the rich young ruler. He did this to the whole of Jerusalem when he stood on the hill. The Bible said he did so in such a way that he, he wept with compassion and love and grace and mercy. So we could presuppose that when Jesus spotted these 10 guys, these 10 people, that he looked on them with love and compassion that was contained within the whole of his being. It was who he was. And the Bible says that he says, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. Well, why would he say go show themselves to the priest? Well, well in, in that day, if you were cured of leprosy, you were to go to the priest first. And they were to deem you clean again. Can you imagine... Ten lepers showing up into the, to a priest in that day. You realize that there had only been one Jew, one Israeli who had ever been cured of leprosy, and that was Miriam. One. Well, what about the guy in the Old Testament that was dipped in Canaan? Well, he was Syrian. Can you imagine what that must have been like had those guys reached the priests? Ten of them showing up in the temple where not only were you supposed to be clean, but everything was supposed to be ceremonially clean. So clean before and then go in and be deemed clean. Ten lepers showing up in the presence of the priests when this was unprecedented. Lepers were not cured. And so, but there's ten people. Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest in foreshadowing that that when you show up to a priest as a leper, it is presupposed that you are healed. And can you imagine 10 people? Guys, you can't get a consensus among three people, especially today, right? 
Can you imagine among 10 people, there probably were 10 different opinions, maybe eight different opinions about what should we do? Should we go? Should we stand here? Why is this guy telling us to go to the priest and show ourselves we have leprosy? They will run us out. But somehow in this moment, they found consensus. You know why I think they found consensus? Because you know what? And we can also, guys, presuppose that in this group of 10 was Samaritans and Jews. So all these years of racism and prejudice and all these years of infighting and violence and all this, 10 people got on the same page, came to an agreement that they would all trust this Jesus who said, go to the priest, even though they weren't healed yet. And they all went. You know why I think they all went? Because we tend to drop all those things that divide us when we have a common need. And we tend to drop all those things that divide us and that we fight over when we have a common thing that needs to be touched. We, we tend to stop fighting and hurting and injuring and abusing one another when we all have a common thing that must be healed. And you know what? We all have a common thing in this room. We're all sinners. And through Christ... He has healed us. And so you might be wondering, well, why in the world would you tout Christ as the answer to all the problems? Because we have a common need. Don't matter where you're from and who you are and what you look like and how old you are and what economic background you have and and whatever it is, we all have a common need of rescuing and salvation worldwide. And that common need has been met in the person of Christ. And what tends to happen and what should happen in the body of Christ, when we all have a common need and know it and have experienced it, that common need should bring us to consensus. Ten people from warring tribes. Ten people afflicted with disease. Ten people who Jesus does not touch He does not speak to that affliction or that disease. He simply says, go show yourself to the priest. Because when you go show yourself to the priest, that means you're clean. Somehow, those 10 people got on the same page in faith and started to go. As they went, the Bible says they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, 10. How many did we start with? 10. Yes, all got on the same page, all came together with common affliction and common need and common need of healing, all came together despite their differences and despite their prejudice and despite their worry, all decided to go. The Bible tells us explicitly, not implicitly, that they were healed on their way, healed of leprosy. But verse 15 crushes us. Verse 15 is like this big mirror to our own hearts and souls. Verse 15 is is us. It is our situation. It is the world we live in. Ten men. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. Ten. 
one came back. Jesus walks into this borderland village, most likely filled with not a lot, not a ton of people to start with and had a bit of a larger leper colony. He walks into this village and he sees these 10 men standing at a distance. Can you imagine having leprosy in those days and having to stand at a distance and watch your life? Let me tell you what leprosy is. Let me tell you what it was for these 10 people. Some of you may know this. Some of you that are doctors and nurses, you're just hanging there with me. You already know this. Um, but I want to set a scene here real quick because I want to make a point about what it means to stand at a distance sometimes and what causes us to stand at a distance, not only from others but from God. And a distance creates this thing, uh, it creates a bit of ingratitude. But this is what leprosy is and was. Leprosy is a disease of the nervous system. Now, a lot of people think it's a disease of the skin, which it manifests itself on the skin, and it comes out in the skin and on the top of, our, of people's bodies. But really, it is a disease of the nervous system because the leprosy bacterium attacks the nerves. Leprosy is spread by multiple skin contacts as well by droplets from the upper respiratory tract, such as nasal secretions that are transmitted from person to person. Listen to this. It's symptoms start in the skin and the nervous system outside the brain and the spinal cord, then spread to other parts such as the hands, the feet, the face, and earlobes. Patients with leprosy experience disfigurement of the skin and bones, twisting of the limbs, curling of the fingers to form the characteristic claw hand. If you Google, which I'm sure you might, someone with leprosy, one of the first images that will come up is the claw hand. People that have nubs for hands that, that this disease has eaten it away, their bones and their skin. Facial changes include thickening of the outer ears and collapsing of the nose. So you really kind of become a skeleton, but you're alive. Tumor-like growths called lepromas may form on the skin and in the respiratory tract and the optic nerve may deteriorate. Reference to leprosy have different emphasis Although we can't know all the reasons that God allows disease into our lives, biblical leprosy is a powerful symbol reminding us of sin spread and its horrible consequences. So not only was this a physical understanding that we are fallen and we live in a fallen state and this disease that was so evident in people and so real because it was on their body yet they were still living is also a, a symbol and an image of sin. It, it is a decaying of the heart, of the soul. It is our common need. And so in the scriptures, we not only see Jesus healing men physically, but we see P Jesus healing people spiritually. The last leper, he says, get up for your faith has made you well. What's interesting about this is that when he comes into the village, they were standing at a distance. You imagine standing at a distance with sores all over your body and perhaps with your limbs disfigured in a way that people can't even recognize you anymore. Your face 
it resembles that of maybe a model skeleton, but yet you are alive. Your nervous system is being attacked constantly, and, and you are disfigured. And you have to basically live your life on the margins of society. You have to live your life on the margins of your family and of your friends. And, and, in, and in the, the law in that day, uh, it was if you were downwind, you had to stand no less than 50 yards away from anyone, sometimes 100 yards. You imagine that, a football field or a half a football field away from your life. And can you imagine standing 50 yards or 100 yards on the outskirts of your life, watching your family interact and watching your friends play and watching your friends go to work and watching your kids play, watching people go about the business of their lives, eat, drink, hang out together, do life, like we like to say, while you stand on the outskirts of it and just watch with no potential to enter back in because most likely you're either going to die or you're going to last a very long time on the margin of society. This is what these 10 men experienced. And they did so because of their disease, but they did so also because of the shame of their disease. And so they stood out there because it was a medical issue, but they also stood out there in an image of a spiritual issue too. Because remember, what was deemed unclean couldn't be taken into the temple to worship. And I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that God uh, didn't have to deem me clean first before he saved me. Thankful that he looked at me and said, really dirty. And so Jesus in this moment does this to these 10 men. They're standing on the outskirts. Who knows how long they stood there? Who knows how long they had to stand there? Who knows how long they had to go 50 yards, 100 yards upwind from the nearest person and watch their life go by in shame. The Bible says that Jesus entered into this village and they cried out to him. No doubt they had heard maybe about him. No doubt they had heard about his miracles and his healings. Maybe they didn't. But maybe they recognized in the moment there's something different about this man and, and he's a teacher. Maybe he's Someone who could help us. And the Bible says that they, they cried out from the nether regions of their shame. And their shame wasn't enough to create too much of a distance between them to cry out for help. So this is what shame does to us. This is what sin does. Shame and sin often creates this fatal distance between our present condition and the help we ultimately need. That's why you can, I'm sure you've all had them in your life. Maybe you've been there. That's why you can beg and plead someone who is literally dying from addiction or dying from something and, and dying in the meddling of their own thoughts and of, on their own digressive patterns. And you can plead with them to get help. And you can plead with them to surrender it and submit and, and walk toward healing. And they won't do it. In fact, they'll make up grand excuses and then blame you. Why? Because shame is ugly. It's a disfiguring thing. Sin is ugly. It's disfiguring. It paralyzes. It keeps us from the help we need. It creates a distance between ourselves and our present need and the help that's right there available to us that can set us free and make us clean. But we're just so shameful. 
Therefore, we don't ever bridge the gap to cry out for help. These men, maybe, perhaps, had gotten to a point to where their shame and the marginalization in their, in, in their society and being on the outskirts of town and being 100 to, to, to 50 yards away from everything in their life, slowly dying of this horrible disease. Maybe they had just gotten to the point to where shame and sin and ugliness all wrapped up in the things that we do as people. Maybe they had just gotten tired of all that to the point to where they just had enough and they said, you know what, this distance is not too great for me anymore. I'm going to cry out. And in verse 13 it says, they said, Jesus, Master, not just Jesus teacher, Jesus master, Jesus controller of my condition. Jesus person who can help. By designating that name for him, they recognized that he could do something for them. And their shame and their sin no longer had the distance. They, they bridged the gap. I love what William Barclay says. He's a Scottish pastor. None of you would be interested, probably. But I, I love this quote. In the common tragedy of their leprosy, they had forgotten they were Jews and Samaritans and remembered only they were men in need. They forgot about all that. When you're dying, forget about all that, right? Should, but you don't. We don't. We like to die sometimes. We like to stand on the outskirts of, of town and we like it for people to pity us. We also like it for people not to know. We like our sin. And then when someone does try to help us, we make them feel horrible for trying to help us. And then sometimes we go an extra mile in our shame and our sin and blame them. Then we do something, in my opinion, that is unthinkable, that I've done more times than I care to remember in my life, and especially in a season of my life where I question everything about God. We go a step further, and we basically say that because God is not improving my condition in the way that I want him to, that he's no longer God. And he can't do it. I, I, I'm here to tell you in accountability with you all, I have uttered those words in the darkness of one period of my life. But it's not, that's not faith. That is not even a, an understanding of truth. That is spiritual manipulation. God, you're only God if you do it the way I want you to. And the reason why he didn't touch him and the reason why he didn't speak to it is because sometimes God just asks us to trust him and place our faith in him and just go. And you know what? On the way, you'll be healed. Because guess what? He's God. You and I are not as much as we think we are. And he loves you and me. And he looks at you. We, we joke, Eric, Yudi and I joke about the old comment I made right when we started this church about the, the, the connotation of Jesus looking at us and loving our faces, loving who we are. And so we always joke about missing your face. It's a line from a movie that, that, that he and I probably shouldn't have watched. But it is... It is funny. I was thinking about that again this week, Eric, because he looks at you and me. He looks at your face. He made it. He loves it. He holds it in his hands and looks and says, look at me. 
like I do to my daughter sometimes when I want her to pay attention. Look. Look in my face. I love you. I'm God and you're not. Sometimes you're not going to get a touch. Sometimes it's not going to get spoken directly to you. But guess what? He's still God and, and faith in him. Faith in him. Him alone. Not us. We don't do it. That's what heals. He says here, go to show yourself to the priest. Somehow they just, I guess they got tired of it. The shame wasn't enough. And so they decided they were going to express faith in the master. He can help us. And so faith does this amazing thing that shame doesn't do. And it does the opposite of what shame does to us. Faith allows us to close the distance between our present condition and the help we ultimately need. When we cry out and express faith in God, what we discover and what I discovered almost 11 years ago now is that he's not always going to touch, he's not always going to speak to it, but he's always going to be God. And so I have to place faith in him and it's not my faith, it's not what I do, it's him. He is able, the Bible says, to do exceeding abundant, more than you can ask, and guess what? More than your little brains and my little brain can think. Because he's God. And so faith in that kind of power, that kind of God, closes the distance, causes us to go get the help that we need because we believe the master will help us. And so these guys on the outskirts realized, I'm done with this. No more shame. No more sin. No more standing over here watching my life unfold while everybody watches me die. I'm going to express my faith and I'm going to start walking. For whatever reason, we're just going to start walking to the, to the, to the temple. Just, that's how they walk too. That's exactly how they walk. I have no idea why I walked with that gate. I have, I have no idea. I just did it over there. It's weird. Just started walking. And the Bible says they were cleansed on their way as they went. Here's where it just gets so tough for us. Verse 15, one of them, one. It's 10. Remember, let's go back to le- keep in your mind what leprosy is. Keep in your mind what leprosy does. Keep in your mind the condition of these men's lives. We do know that from the ritual that they would have gone to the temple. So after they were cleansed, nine of them on the way. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? Uh, Brian, uh, Brian and myself and Preston, we went to a movie the other night and it was just, it was really cool and geeky. And, and, um, it was just awesome. And I was sitting there and I was watching this one particular scene and I was thinking that, that something similar could have happened with these men as they walked toward the temple. Can you imagine having the call hand? And, and walking with a, with a gate that, that, that just, it aches the very, essence of your whole life to, to move and you're walking with a call hand and, and you are healed and your, your hands are reformed and not only are they reformed but they're like a baby skin 
you straighten up and it doesn't hurt anymore and I have ears again and I can see and I don't look like Skeletor. Can you imagine? I imagine that whatever stupid gate I used a minute ago or whatever it was, yeah, that probably picked up a little bit. Like, oh, okay, okay. What in the world <laughs> is going on? So they would have gone into the temple, the nine of them, and showed themselves to the priests and said, wait, weren't you the lepers? What's this? Oh, we, we got tired of the shame. We got tired of blaming everybody else. We just decided to live by faith. Here we are, but there's something fundamentally wrong. Only one of those guys, one on his way, oh my goodness, stop. And because he desired a relationship with the master more than the religion of ceremonial cleaning, oops, he went back to Jesus, the one who healed him. And the Bible says that he cried out. He shouted. Praise Jesus? No, don't miss this. Praise God. Because he recognized not only the authority of power in Christ, but he recognized that he was God. And that he was the only one who can heal. And he will not be spiritually manipulated. And he will not be dictated to. And he will not change. But he does love you. And he does love me. And he sent his son Christ to die for us. And he's the master. And one guy out of 10, how many? 10. One out of 10 came back to say thanks. One. New life. Can you imagine those nine, 10 men going back to their home that day? Can you imagine if they had little children? how that must have been to go back into their home and be able to touch their child, touch their spouse, or enter back into their life. All this was done through the power of God in Christ. And faith in him. But only one guy came back. Just one out of ten. Why is the comeback of gratitude so rare? Why is it one out of ten? Gratitude or lack thereof is one of the most revealing things about the content of our heart. It can say such amazing things about who we are, but yet in so many ways, it can say some very dark, ugly things about who we are. I mean, even, even a former general who tried to take over the world can see that. I mean, Napoleon Bonaparte once said, do you know what is harder to bear than the reverses of fortune? Do you know what is harder than getting your way, than not getting your way? Do you know what it's harder than to bear than, than trying to control your own life and that not happening? You know what's worse than that? You know what's worse than you and I blaming God for our problems? The baseness, hideous, ingratitude.
of man. One out of 10. Ingratitude shows up in all kinds of ways in our lives. It shows up in our lifestyles. It shows up in the way we treat other people. It shows up in the way we treat spouses. It shows up in the way we serve God. We would never go to seminars and conferences where they talk about the American church declining and dying. And people come to church one out of five, six, well, I don't even know it, the, the whole statistics anymore. I've, I've been to like three conferences in the last two months and they all said the same thing. And it's, it's depressing. But we're not without hope. But, but the reason why we struggle with all that is because we're ungrateful. We're ungrateful to the one who healed us. We're the nine lepers who are interested in living our life knowing what we want. Nine, getting our hands back. Nine, getting set free to give my life to something other than Jesus. That's what we tend to do. Everything else gets our lives. One guy, though, gives us this great template of gratitude that on the way to the temple with his new hands and his new legs and his new feet, and his, he couldn't even see his face, but he could imagine, I guarantee you, turns and run back to give thanks. One out of ten.